Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores how today's horror filmmakers are getting their movies made while deconstructing their methods and career strategies into practical insights that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes creative processes, funding resources, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and much, much more. Today we're talking to Andrew Corkin. Andrew is a producer whose body of work includes Martha Marcy May Marlene, the American remake of We Are What We Are, The Beach House, now streaming on Shudder, Alone With You, the feature debut of Emily Bennett and Justin Brooks, the Netflix docu-series Pepsi Wears My Jet, and many more titles. In addition to producing, Andrew is also a teacher who was taught at Emerson and the American Film Institute and goes out of his way to teach career lessons that are not typically taught in film school, all of which is very evidenced by this conversation. Andrew delivers some of the most honest and thorough insights into what it means to be a producer that I think I've ever heard on this show. This episode is years worth of film school in a single hour, so get ready to take notes. In this conversation, Andrew and I discuss the keys to sustaining a long and successful career in film, the importance of mentorship, and his experience within the horror genre. Please enjoy this conversation with Andrew Corkin. Andrew Corkin, good to see you. How's it going? Good to see you, Nick. It's going well. You have a pretty interesting career background spanning from multiple features and documentaries and music videos, and I'd love to just get into your early history. I know you went to film school, and I have a a number of friends who went to film school and then weren't quite able to, 10, 15 years later, stay in the industry. So would love to get a sense of how you transition from film school into having a pretty formidable film career and stay in it. And where do people veer off of the path? Because I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions around that. Totally. It's a great question. I'd say if I were to boil it down to a secret, it's mentorship. I was fortunate enough to go to the best film school in the world at NYU. And at the same time, though, it's film school is just school. It's, it's an opportunity for people to go and learn about theory, you read books, you take classes. But what separated for me, at least, was the people I was surrounded with. Mm. Is that here I was, I grew up in a family that was so far removed from the film world, didn't have anyone that was in this business that pushed me in this place. I just, I fell in love with movies. I got into my first choice film school, went to NYU, was plopped down in the center of New York, and I was in this class with filmmakers and writers and actors, many of whom have done incredible things. And it really levels you up in a lot of ways is in that I had no idea what a producer was. But so here I am with people that have been doing much more significant things already at the age of 18 that knew so clearly what they wanted to do. And so it forces you to say, I need to figure my shit out. I, I still did everything, but I met such incredible people that their drive and sort of their targets made me question everything for myself. Of like, what do I actually want to be doing? And so then fast forward, it, it took a full year just taking classes, meeting great people that were inspiring to me before I took my first producing class and I actually had not signed up for it. I entered the class a week late. And so I missed the introductory class. 
And so I've basically dropped in the deep end and she's explaining that the final project for the semester is you have to produce a short film. And of course I'm like, what the hell is producing? Like at that point, I'm assuming it's a fat white dude sitting in a director's chair, smoking a cigar and throwing money at problems. That's what I knew about producing at that point. I just assumed producing is executive producing, executive producing is just money. And so the class really focused on how producers function in the creative role and the business roles, logistics, everything. And it brought everything into such perspective to me because then I, I realized that for years, like in high school on the things that I was really good at and without recognizing them directly was I was good at working with people as both a leader and as a team member. I was very organized, very management focused. I like to think that I'm I have a pretty good creative brain as well. And the fact that I was good with time management as well, all, all these things were already in my back pocket as part of the producer's arsenal of tools that one needs. I sort of realized that producing was a natural fit for me, even though I had no idea what it was up until that point. And so I know this is a very roundabout way of answering your question, but it was in that class that I learned that I wanted to be a producer. And then lucky, luckily enough, I had these two filmmakers come into that class who had just graduated previously, the previous year from NYU, that were coming back to talk about their journey, about how they learned about producing, about how they started their careers, about the stuff that they had made. And I was just so taken by how actively they were pursuing their passion. And one of them said, and I still remember this, is that he said, we just, we don't wait for opportunities, we grab them ourselves. And so he talked about going into a record label and like sitting on the couch in the waiting area and waiting to meet with that A&R rep that potentially could give them that music video as a way of saying, great, we'll give this to you. You can make a $2,000 music video. Just go away, get out of our waiting room. And I was like, man, these guys are rock and roll. They're so cool. And they had just done a short film that they had won Cine Foundation with at the Cannes Film Festival. And they were speaking my language in that they were just creating. They weren't waiting for permission. They were finding these opportunities. They were willing them into existence. And I watched their stuff and I was like, this is, these guys are cool. This is, this is exactly what I want to be doing. And so at the end of class, when the teacher said, does anyone have questions for them? And, and one of them interjected and said, actually, if anyone is interested in interning, always looking for people to help, my hand just went straight up and I was like, yes, like I want to work with these guys. But that was the first time that I met this filmmaker named Sean Durkin, and I met a producer named Josh Mon. And together with their other friend, Antonio Campos, they had formed a company called Borderline Films. And it was with those three guys that it comes back to this word of mentorship, mm -hmm. is that I identified these filmmakers that I saw were doing something that I wanted to be able to emulate and do myself and I wanted to learn from. And so starting sophomore year, I began at the bottom rung as their intern and just hustled. Like I did everything that they needed, whether it was fetching them food or driving cars, like PA stuff, and then working my way up the ladder of showing I'm hungry, I have the drive, I, I'm, I don't know exactly what I'm doing right now, but I'm learning on every single project. So it'd be music videos and short films. And so I really cut my teeth working with these guys. And so then fast forward a year and a half or two years, they're ready to make their first feature, which would be Antonio Campos's film called After School. And that was my first opportunity to level up and, and prove myself in a producerial capacity to help them set the project up, oversee it on set, raise some money, work with actors. And what's 
crazy now, and this is just such a testament to our casting director, Susan Shopmaker, is like you look at the cast of that film. This is the first film I ever produced. It was the first film Antonio featured Antonio Verdredge, Sean and Josh produced. And the two leads are Ezra Miller and Jeremy Allen White. You have also, it was like one of the first films from Michael Stolbarg. You have Rosemary DeWitt and you have Paul Sparks and you have David Constable. This incredible ensemble of actors, all of them were willing to do this micro budget little indie film that we were shooting in northeastern Connecticut on a prep school campus. And that was really my masterclass in, in how to make films. Because at that point, like I'd done short films, I decided after that first short film producing class that I wanted to be a producer. And so I started taking on other students' short films. And I would take all the classes, take film financing classes and marketing classes and line producing classes to help supplement my interest in producing. But it really was just going out there and doing it myself and seeing how these other people did it. Like Sean is someone that I credit more than anyone else is like really being that Obi-Wan Kenobi for me of seeing how he did it. And he, I, he is one of the most talented writers and directors there is. And what's annoying in terms of embarrassment of riches is he was one of the best producers I ever learned from. So the guy can just do it all. Yeah. But I watched how he would work with financiers and be a creative partner for Antonio on that set and talk to our cinematographer and work with the actors. And all of those things is I'm listening and I'm watching from the sidelines and thinking, that's so interesting of how he's handling this. And more often than not, it was, I, I want to just completely replicate what he's doing. And sometimes there'd be sort of individual circumstances where I would say, here's how I would do it differently. But that's what makes you a better producer is you learn from the people around you and figure out what you want to take away from them and what ultimately you want to add to or do differently. Mm -hmm. And so in that roundabout way, that's where my career really starts is just finding these filmmakers that I was inspired by. And I learned, I saw that there was something to learn from by working with them. And it's a philosophy that I've certainly applied beyond in everything else that I've done. So when I'm looking for new filmmakers to work with, I certainly, if someone has something to gain from me, I, I really encourage the idea of mentorship. And likewise, every project that I've taken on, they're all different and diff they're all very unique in their own ways. But the commonality, it might not be what the content is or genre or the tone or anything like that. It's simply each one of them. I knew that there was something I wanted to take away or learn from the people involved. Wow. So mentorship is like a through line throughout your entire career. It seems like. Yeah, yeah. I think so. And I, I don't get the people that like or have closed door policies. Obviously, like the, the people at the very top, they have to be very selective of who they let in. But the, the truth is a good idea can come from anywhere. Yeah. And so I'm always open to finding where those great ideas can come from and, and people that bring unique visions to life. And it also then extends to like when I'm deciding what project to take on and who I'm deciding to work with. Certainly work with directors that can be more collaborative than others. And I find that sort of the, the best middle ground exists for directors that certainly have their vision, that know what they want, or at least let's say that they know 80 plus percent of what they want, but that remaining 20% or so, they are open to building that with the people around them. You don't want that director that's coming and saying, I don't know what I want, but we can find it together. You, you need to at least come in armed with an understanding of what you bring that no one else could bring to the table. 
And then beyond that, you don't want someone that is a hundred percent certain because then they're not taking outside collaboration. Yeah. And so it really is, that's where I think the sweet spot exists for producers is that someone that comes in with a very good grasp of what it is they want to accomplish, but they need that outside support. They need that person coming in to unlock what the fullest potential of a story and a project is. Oh, wow. I feel like you just answered my next question, which was what does a producer do? Obviously I know what a producer does. Everybody does. Yeah. But every producer kind of gives a different answer in terms of what the real job is. But I feel like you just nailed that question. <laughs> I teach producing and I've been teaching for years at different places. So I currently teach at the American Film Institute, which is tremendous opportunity in that I'm teaching these grad students that have had incredible careers and even at the grad level or the undergrad level, like people come in not knowing what producing is. You go to that cotton club case of 88 or whatever it was, where literally there was a lawsuit over the fact that you can't differentiate what a producer does. And so someone's suing over their credit being incorrect. It's very, it's not the same thing as someone saying, hey, I'm not credited as the director because people know what a director does. People know what a writer does. Right. People don't know what producers do. And the sad reality is because that is un unregulated, I know the Producers Guild has their Producers Guild mark to create some sense of accountability for differentiating true producers. But all I know to go on is I can sleep easy at night knowing when I take a producer credit on a project that I am involved across of it, across yeah. all. Of it. I believe a true creative producer is someone that is involved in the, the planting of that initial kernel on and then you are growing that plant. You are packaging it together. I'm looking for the financing. I'm finding the director. And the, if there's not a writer just attached, it's a piece of IP. You're putting together those pieces to get you into production. I love being on sets. So love overseeing as that project transforms from 100 pieces of paper into thousands of gigabytes of data on a hard drive. <laughs> And then, and then working with the director and the team in post to really refine that. And then I, I also, I like the marketing and distribution side of working with sales. So I like to think of myself as a, a full four quadrant producer is that I'm involved in the ideation and development, sort of the creative growth of the project production, and then seeing it off into the world. Got it. And having come from film school and had such uh, illustrious experience in the film industry. As a teacher, what are some of the things that you make sure to cover that you may not have learned in film school, but you really want your students to come away with? Great questions. And that's why I got into teaching in the first place is that I asked myself, what weren't we being taught? I, I took some film finance courses. So sometimes I'll say that my class does veer more into business and financial and business affairs, like BA type subjects. I didn't know the difference between agents and managers. And I didn't fully grasp what the role that they played on the creative process is. And so I thought that was really important. And ultimately starting to answer the questions of what do you do when you have a great idea? What are the actual like legal steps and the financial steps and the business steps that want to take other than creatively, let's just make sure that we have the best script possible. Great. That's maybe more than half the battle, but that still doesn't get you to the top of the mountain. And so in that case, it's really guiding the students of how do you properly partner up with people, what expectations to set in terms of what people bring to the table and how to, I don't know, how to raise money, how to identify partners, how to protect yourself. These are all things that I think maybe I got in small bits, 
when I was a student, mm. but it wasn't available in one place. The class that I teach each week, we look at a different case study and we explore that entire cycle of the process of the life of a project is that we look at where they started, what some of the speed bumps were along the way, how they ultimately got made, how they got released. And then using hindsight being 2020 is understanding what maybe we would have done differently today. And so that is a way to figure out, okay, like this is everything that you should know by exploring it in real terms with real projects. And I love just, again, mentorship, bringing in people that are smarter than I, or, you know, at the very least I can speak to that particular project itself mm -hmm. that they come in and they can say, yeah, this is, this is something that I didn't know going into it. And that will, I will forever be changed. And I will always approach this in a different way on my future projects. Cause that's what it is. Like every film I've ever done, every show I've ever done has been a different experience, but I've probably taken something away from the previous one before that. I want to learn. I want to learn. And that's what I love about this job is I get paid to meet cool people and to learn random facts about a lot of things. I think I'm pretty good at trivia and like a lot of crosswords. So it's, I have this random collection of data from all over the world in terms of bizarre facts and stuff, because I read a lot. I love to learn more. And I bring that to the table when I teach as well as I anything that excites me that I didn't know before I want to pass that on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure all of that fuels producing and all comes in handy when it comes to your company and selecting people to work with, whether it's writers or mostly directors, I feel like a lot of people feel talent is everything and talent clearly is really important, but there's also all these other overlooked elements that people just don't think about. Are you easy to work with? Are you enjoyable to work with? When it comes to selecting collaborators, let's start with directors. When it comes to directors that you are going to green light a film for or work with, what are some of the things that you look for outside of talent? Collaboration is really so essential. I have continued to recognize this more and more as you are getting started. You say yes to everything because as, especially as an indie producer, which was, has been my life for, you know, most of my career is that you're living project to project and you only get paid if the project gets made. And so that means a lot of times you're not working on one at a time. You're working at a lot at any given time in the hopes that one of them goes, which allows you to pay your rent and, yeah. and feed your people. And so with, with that in mind, early on, I would just say yes to stuff and I wouldn't properly vet projects or filmmakers. There would be projects that I love the script and they come with a director attached. And I think to myself, like, yeah, we'll make it work without ever properly having that conversation of challenging directors and saying, how do you see this? What, how do you want to approach this? Because one of the most important things for any producer is making sure that you are on the same page as your creative team from day one. Yeah. Otherwise you are, you're going off in different directions without even knowing that you might read the same script. I've always thought this would be so fun someday is that you give five directors, five cool directors, the same short film and seeing what each of them would do with it. They could be the most different projects of all time, even though the words are the same. Hmm. And likewise, knowing to have that conversation with filmmakers at the onset saves everyone a lot of time and, and heart, heartbreak or opportunity. I'd say I've learned that very much now is when I'm looking at a project. I think that if, if there is a script to read or if there's IP to check out, it starts with me asking myself, do I like this creatively on that baseline level? Is it something that I see 
a possibility in? Would I watch it? Is there commercial potential? That's step one. Step two is the people that are attached to it, whether that's a director or the other creative parts. Am I in line with the way that they see it as well? Because it's as much as it might seem like a real gut punch to have to say no to a project that you see the potential in. I don't want to spend a year or two years or five years of my life going down that road with someone that just never is going to see eye to eye with, as me on that particular project. So it all comes back to this idea of collaboration, of of understanding who your collaborators are and, and what ultimately is your collective end goal. Beyond that, nowadays, like I, I graduated film school in 2008. That's one year after a little website started called YouTube. That really changed the game for people to be able to get work out there for you to see. There's no barrier of entry that exists anymore for people to go out and just shoot stuff themselves and be able to, to reveal what their vision is as opposed to just like having to tell people. I personally like don't love ripper reels in the sense that I can look at one of those and I'm like, yeah, that's what they did. And I know you want to try to pull that off, but I don't know if I have never seen anything else of yours. How do I know? that you can capture, I don't know, like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. I, I want this to look dark and brooding like Gilroy film, but at the same time, like, have you done that before? Who's your DP? Like you can look at all these examples and you could even know what like the shutter is like on the camera and what cameras they use and do all that. It doesn't mean it's going to be right for the projects. It doesn't mean it's going to look good. I, I love for filmmakers to be able to show versus tell. Yeah. And so being to put something together, even if it's like a two minute proof of concept type thing that reflects on what it is that they are building. One of the most significant films of mine in, in, in my history is that I produced Martha Marcy May Marlene, which was Sean Durkin's first film. Martha only exists because Sean first made a short film called Mary Last Scene, which I also produced with them. And Mary Last Scene was made strictly as a proof of concept. The idea was that we had taken out Martha as a feature script to financiers and smartly, most people came back and said the same thing. We don't know what this director's done. He like, we had a short film of his, but he had nothing that directly spoke to the tone and the approach of what he was trying to accomplish with Martha. And so we knew we had to go back to the drawing board and we needed to actually be able to show people what we were pulling off. And so we did that. We spent $800, like just called in favors. That money went to food and gas and everything else was just people wow. chipping in. Like my friend had a car. I was working for this producer in New York and he had some sound equipment and a couple lights. And I said, hey, can I borrow this stuff for the weekend? And he let me do that, save 500 bucks there. It all, we all came together and we ultimately had something that we knew reflected what Sean wanted to do with the feature film. And what we couldn't know is we also made something that would get the excitement of, would capture excitement from Sundance and be selected to play as a short film at Sundance and then get selected to play in Director's Fortnite at Cannes. And though that momentum is what led to Martha being created, but coming back to it, it, it begins because Sean knew I, I just have to show people. I, I can't tell them my vision anymore. I need to show them like, this is me executing it those filmmakers that are willing to pull up themselves by their bootstraps and get their hands dirty and just go and shoot shit and be able to prove themselves. Obviously, film can be extremely expensive. Like it's a luxury to be able to make these stories more and more. You got a phone in your pocket. You have friends that will go to war for you. Everyone has one favor to ask of anyone else in their life. And if you can 
strategically hold on to that favor until you're ready to. And you go to those friends and say, hey, you're a great cook. Can you cook uh, food for a crew of 10 this weekend? Hey, your mom is a car. Can we use your mom's car to drive our equipment up? Is you use those favors so that allows you to have that one thing that is going to jumpstart where you are. So I'd say it's like that drive, that collaboration. Those are the type of filmmakers that I at least want to sit down with and talk if those are two attributes of theirs. Yeah. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I feel like that's a, just a power tip because that movie, I, I can never do this right. Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, right? Yes. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> it is such a specific tone and it evokes something so specific in you. I feel like it just couldn't be captured on a treatment, but showing people, showing the tone, somatically evoking the spirit of the movie that you want to make. There's no other way of doing it than like actually making a, a smaller version of it. That makes a, a huge amount of sense because it's a matter of showing your vision and your potential as a director. And the only way to do it is with the medium that you're trying to pitch yourself in, which is film. But no, I feel exactly. like that's huge. Martha is what in so many ways is actually what led me into the world of genre. Mm. And I'll be the first to admit, and my filmmakers know this, I am a terrible horror watcher. I get scared so easily. <laughs> I'll get scared watching my own films and I know where I was standing on set when it happened. Yeah. I read a horror script. I, I have to have the lights on. I, I just, one of those things, I have a very active imagination. Like when I saw the new Exorcist, David Gordon Green trailer the other day, like I was closing my eyes during most of it. Like that fucking terrifying. <laughs> but where horror begins for me is that with Martha. So Martha comes out and but we're, I'm so blessed in that it was received. We sold the Fox Searchlight for a lot of money out of Sundance launched the careers of people like Lizzie Olsen and Julia Garner. And it was exciting and amazing. And so, of course, from there, as for any producer, you're only as good as your next film is I started looking for those next projects. Mm -hmm. And what I saw was that people started sending me thrillers and horrors. And up until that point, I had very firmly seen Martha in one light in that it was a drama. Yep. That it was like a very intense drama, dark drama, but this was a dramatic film. I wasn't using the G word. I wasn't using the H word. Like it wasn't a genre film. It wasn't a horror film. This was a drama, a drama that played at Cannes and Sundance. And yet people were sending me stuff. And I said, this is so strange. I don't do horror films. And this is 2010, this is 2011 at that point, or Sundance 2012, we shot in 2011. And what I'm recognizing at that moment in time is there was this shift that was occurring in the horror and genre space is up until that point, the aughts were really defined by Eli Roth brand of, of horror. And I remember I, I saw two films that would become really influential in defining the type of, of genre that I was really excited by. They're both foreign films. One was called Somos Like AI, We Are What We Are, which is a Mexican film by Jorge Michel Grau that I just was like blown away by because I, I remember saying, this isn't horror. This is, yes, it's scary and they're cannibals, but this is a gothic family drama yeah. that like has comedic beats to it. And then the other was the original Swedish Let the Right One In, which again, mm. horror and scary, but it's a love story about these two kids and underrated love. And I just remember being like, why aren't we blending genres like this, like they're doing abroad, like you know, in Mexico and Sweden and all these other places. And it, it got me really fascinated to really explore these stories from around the world. I started to recognize that it's not, it's not our grandfather genre anymore. <laughs> it's not torture porn. It's not the blood and guts type stuff from back in the day. 
But at the same time, too, it's like different than the carpenter and the Friedkin type stuff as well. It's a whole new beast. And this is what also paved the way for the Blums of the world. And I was totally into that. And so I started to figure out, like, what are those stories that they don't feel like traditional genre on the surface that I want to tell? And ultimately, that does lead me back to that inspiring film and Jorge Michel Grau's We Are What We Are. And so from that point on, I was like, this is great. Why aren't we doing stuff like this here? And I decided to answer my own question by then going down that road to get the rights to the Mexican version to create my own take on it, which is what led me to producing We Are What We Are with Jim Mickle directing it. And Jim is a dynamo and he's awesome. And he brought his own vision to it that I think holds very true to the original essence of that film. And I, I still remember it's such a, a wonderful memory for me is being with Jim and with Jorge at our Cannes premiere in Directors Fortnite in 2013. And Jorge hadn't seen it up until that point. And when he finally saw it, he was just ecstatic of what we did yeah. with his film because it was its own thing. It paid homage to what he created, but it was able to stand alone to that. And it was just a wonderful feeling. And like, I love what we created in terms of the family dynamic and the relationships in that so that it, it does feel more than genre. It begins at film school, meeting these filmmakers that I wanted to learn from. We make a film that in a lot of ways starts to get talked about in genre circles with Martha. And that then leads to me starting to look at genre in a different way and, and say to myself, I want to find stories that fit into the space. That's the beauty of the horror genre is there's such a wide spectrum of it. And everybody hates the term elevated horror. I use it, but I get it. Yeah. 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 But I mean, as a genre, it hybridizes with other genres. Horror comedies are great, but horror dramas, I think, are really powerful because the mm -hmm. horror is social commentary or horror as metaphor, like Babadook, I think is one of the great horror oh. masterpieces of the, of the past like 10 years. And it's about trauma. It's about overcoming trauma basically and grief and all of that, but it's horror, but it's also a drama, but yeah, melding them together, I think is, is, is really powerful. You mentioned Babadook and I, I want to like touch on again, the power of not necessarily just even mentorship, but like also just what I love about producing unlike writing, directing, anything else, producing really is, it's a team sport. Mm -hmm. You have some films that have 40 plus producing credits. That's embarrassing. But at the same <laughs> time, there is no limit on building the all-star team that you can create with as a producer. And so case in point, like Babadook was one of the best genre films of that decade when mm -hmm. it came out. It's incredible. And so for me, I say to myself, I want to work with that director. I want to work with that producer. So Christian Moliere is one of the producers on Babadook. Like we have a project now together because oh, nice. I reached out to him after I first saw that film and I'm like, this is amazing. Let's keep in touch and let's find stuff together. And so that's what's really exciting to me about this role of being a producer is that every film you get to be the manager of an all-star team is you get to put together, you, you marry together the best director and the best DP and the best actors. And likewise, too, it's the best producers. And so I continually am looking for those producers that I can learn from. So I have, I have another project with an incredible producer named Minette Louie. Minette did Swallow. She did Catch a Fair One. So she's definitely done these awesome elevated horror films. Our project is not in that space. No, it's a disturbing story. But again, like it just comes back to who are those producers that like I have admired their work. 
mm-hmm. and I know enough about them to know I want to learn from you and working with you. And that is something that, that I love is that continually I can surround myself with people that not only make me look better because they're so fucking talented, yeah. but I come out of that project being a better producer, like Jim Mickle's producer, Linda Moran, one of the smartest and best producers I've ever worked with. So that's, I like working with her, I felt like I was a better producer going into my next film. And that's what I want to continually do is I want to be smarter. I want to know more going to each film. And so that hopefully someone will say that about me someday. So I worked with Andrew Corkin and I was a better producer coming out of that project because we pushed each other and we know more as a result. Yeah. That's awesome. Outside of formal education, are there any books or resources that were particularly formidable for you in terms of your film career, either strategy or um, anything creative related or books on producing, but any resources that you would recommend? One of my favorite documentaries, I love Kid Stays in the Picture. Oh, yeah. Um, that's like Robert Evans. What's so interesting, this is actually part of why I teach, is everything changes so quickly. So like a lot of the lessons that you learn from that book and that documentary with Kids Days in the Picture is like not a lot of it is relevant in the, of, in the film entertainment world of today other than I, I love the way that he talks about like working with the Coppolas and the Polanskis of the world. And like those, that perspective certainly can translate. Mm-hmm. But so I love that. I think it's really important. Like I have, I encourage my students to just stay on top of, it's not necessarily reading, but just, like, it's reading in some way of industry news. Mm-hmm. Like ultimately, like every filmmaker wants to believe that their project is truly unique and nothing ever has you know been produced that's like what they want to create. But for being a creative field, Hollywood is pretty uninventive. You know, we <laughs> see that with all remakes that are made. And so I think understanding what the market is telling us in that moment is very important to be aware of. What is, what's doing well in the box office? What are people talking about? And you find out those things on Variety and Deadline, all the traditional sites, but stay being aware of what is working so that you can build off of that. Yeah. It doesn't mean you should be making carpet copies and God, if I had a nickel for every time that I was pitching something to a studio or finance or distributor that they said, no, everyone wants this right now. You need to know a little bit about this, the business of show business. Yep. And so that extends to what stuff is costing at the moment, what people are making stuff for, what it's selling for and what's doing well, because that maybe gives you a small, like a little bit of more of a directed target of what you want to go and try to make. And I'll even add one more to that is that I came up making these micro budget films, like short films and then feature films. After school was very much micro budget. And for that, it's great. Like we could do that ourselves. We, we knew that we could raise that money and we had the resources to pull. For filmmakers starting out, there's some people that'll go and try to make a 10 plus million or $100 million film as their first film when all you need is a camera and some good actors and a good script. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to cost a lot. Looking at single locations or single single actor type projects. You look at a film like mine that I did called The Vigilante. Mm-hmm. I produced that with Lars Knudsen. It was Sarah Dagger Nixon's film and Olivia Wilde starred in it. And when Sarah and I developed that from the ground up, like we were envisioning that as like a two hundred fifty to $500,000 film. And it's because Sarah was a first time director. She had a short or two under her belt and she was ready to direct. But I told her that 
the script we were originally taking out was probably a million plus dollars to make. And it was difficult. I said, it's going to be really hard to get this off the ground without you having a track record. And so she said, I'm ready to direct. What do I do? And so she worked on a script and like I gave her homework of films like Antonio Campos's Simon Killer and Lodge Kerrigan's Clean Shaven and Melville's Le Samurai. I was like, what do these have in common? Minimal locations, one actor, but also big story without having to spend on VFX and action sequences and everything else. And that's what led a couple of weeks later to her first outline for Vigilante. So it's really just thinking it starts with great story. They don't have to have these intricate worlds, these expensive worlds to build from, it begins there of saying, what's around me that I can utilize to just go and do it myself? Yeah. Well, I feel like that's a perfect place to end. I usually ask right. the guests, what's your, any parting yes, wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there? And I, I feel like you just already nailed it. But. Yeah, just go do it. Just start making stuff. And nowadays, it doesn't matter where it lands. As long as you're making something great, people will find it. So go make great shit. Don't let anyone stop you. Awesome. Andrew, this was a blast. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Nick. It's great meeting. I'm so glad we got to do this. Yeah, yeah, me too. All right. Here is always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Andrew Corkin. Number one, heed the 80-20 principle. Andrew pays a lot of mind to which directors he decides to work with, noting that it's a three to five year partnership and therefore a very serious commitment. The balance he seeks in a director he's working with is someone with a strong vision, but open to feedback. The ideal director has 80% of their vision realized and thought out, but remains open to 20% influence from collaborators. A director with too strong of a vision is as difficult to work with as one whose vision isn't fleshed out enough. Therefore, it's crucial to demonstrate a thorough vision while maintaining some fluidity to enable powerful collaborations. Number two, show, don't tell. When pitching Martha Marcy May Marlene with director Sean Durkin, raising money was a challenge since at the time, Sean was a first-time feature director. Andrew and Sean responded by creating a short proof of concept showcasing the vision, tone, and nuance of the film they wanted to make. This approach was successful, helping them raise the funds not just by communicating the vision, but by demonstrating Sean's ability to deliver it as a director. A verbally articulated vision can only take you so far. Producers need to see what you're capable of actually making if they're going to invest in you. Number three, lean into mentorship. A common theme throughout Andrew's career has been mentorship and education. He not only seeks to learn from collaborators, but will even choose specific collaborators to learn from. This learner's mindset can be rare in the film business, which is just rife with ego. But Andrew credits this mentality of continuous learning to his success and career sustainability. And even after over a decade in the industry, he still constantly strives to learn more. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care. Hey, guys, one last thing before you head off, and this is The Howl. 
How would you like a monthly newsletter featuring a recap of the latest horror news, my personal movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered? If this sounds like something you'd enjoy, sign up for my monthly email newsletter, The Howl, today. You can sign up for The Howl by visiting nicktaylor.com slash The Howl. That's nicktaylor.com slash The Howl. 